Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. Gotta ask you a favor before we kick off. We are looking for your support. The Tortoise Shack, as you know, has no ads, no sponsors, and relies entirely on you, dear listeners, to keep this show on the road. So while you're listening, click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. Choose a level and join us for a month. That's all we're asking. You get tons of extra content, all of our podcasts, entirely plea-free in one consolidated feed and access to our huge back catalogue now. And there's even a lot of crack with the with our members in the community section. Thanks for listening. Thanks for rating, reviewing, subscribing. But please try and keep this independent podcast platform going. I won't delay any further. Enjoy the podcast. <laughs> Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn. And today I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast back by a guest we had many, many years ago, um, a guest that some listeners might know, others might not, but um, someone who is, I would call him Ireland's uh, Slavov uh, Zizek um, in terms of philosopher and intellect it is none other than dr john bissett john i am delighted to have you on reboot republic cheers it's great to be here rory that's quite an introduction <laughs> i just i don't have as many jokes as zizek that's the problem and probably far off his intellect as well i uh, know i i'd say you're well managed with the jokes um you're here because you have written a new book which is published called it's not where you live it's how you live uh, class and gender struggles in a Dublin estate, and it is a fantastic book that I would recommend um, listeners get their hands on it. It is published by Policy Press, and it is an incredible account um, that takes us a kind of deep dive into the world of living in a public housing estate. Um, but what's brilliant about it is how you. Kind of describe the lives as you describe it. It's it's an ethnography, um, an ethnographic study, the lives, real lives of of people in the public housing estate. But then you kind of shape it and and describe and write about it, drawing on great sociologists and philosophers and academics, and bring in you know your theory and applying to it, which is really um engaging and I think some some deeply thought provoking approaches and we're going to delve into some of those um but first john myself and yourself go back a long time i was yeah. thinking now it's possibly 21 years since we first met or 22 years uh oh. when i went up to saint michael's estate uh when i was doing my research for my phd on public private partnerships and i remember andrew mclaren and sinead um kelly brought me up and you were there, and I think it was just when the Department of Housing had said to you that you would have to do the regeneration of St. Michael's Estate as a public-private partnership. Um, and that was where my connection started. Then, of course, I started researching on the estates, and then we worked together in Dolphin House for six or seven years when I was working in there. Um, in a public housing estate and a great community, and a lot of the the lives and the stories that it, that you write about in your book, um, I worked alongside with those and almost lived with them for the the six years in the porter cabins in Dolphin House. Um, but listen, John, 
in terms of the book, we could talk for an you... hour about all that stuff, Rory. Huh? We could talk for an hour about that history on its we own. We could talk about that. We yeah. could talk about that. And and I'm thinking back to the the anti austerity protests. Yeah. You know, as well the um the protests against the community cuts and the regeneration dolphin house, incredible history, incredible yeah. work. Um, and in a way, we will come into that because it does reflect yeah. on it. For you, what was the point of writing the book? So maybe, so you've just spoken a bit about that kind of, let's call it regeneration history. It's a lot more than that. But so I, I was involved in Michael's in from early 2000s, went to a public meeting up there. And the short story of that is that we, over a period of time, ended up writing a book called Regeneration, Public Good or Private Profit. And it was a kind of basic uh primer in some ways about the political economy of, of regeneration in dublin and we like we a few of us had read a lot about what had happened in other places and i think our optimism um at that time kind of said no it, we're too wily too uh we've too you know we've too much energy to let that happen here but it did happen here in so many different places. So that book was an attempt to grasp. Just, yeah, go on. Just explain what is regeneration and what was St. Michael's Estate for listeners. So in the, like, coming to the end of the 90s, early 2000s, the Irish state effectively used a model in sort of imported from Britain and the US and Europe, which said, for instance, in St. Michael's Estate, um, we, we, the state who normally would rebuild this estate because it's in such a mess physically, won't do that in the old way. We will use a new way. And in the case of Michael's, and you've written a book particularly about this yourself, Rory, on public-private partnerships, we will use a PPP, public-private partnership model, where effectively we trade some of the land and we get something back in return. So the quid pro quo is we give the developer, say, half of the 14 acres or whatever, and he get, in return, he gives us X number of houses and buildings and so on. So, but the, the problem was it was all hinged on a very volatile and ultimately collapsing real, you know, uh, housing market that collapsed globally and then collapsed here in Ireland. So that like regeneration in some ways is a, you know, it could have many forms. It could be state funded. It could be, but in our case, the model that was being promoted all across the city and then was going to be rolled out in Limerick and other places was effectively that, that way of doing things. And as we, we know from our recent history, almost every single pro project, Fatima is probably an exception, uh, had different issues in terms of going into NAMA, um, so all of those projects effectively fell off the conveyor belt and we had to wait 10, 15 years before anybody said anything was even remotely possible again. And now, as you write yourself about uh, in GAFs, we are back in a really strange place of a mad uh, bubble of a housing market once again. And those estates and those lands are so valuable that uh, there's a there's effectively a class cleansing uh, and a pushing of whole communities uh, off the lands that they're on very subtly, very slowly. And there's some nice offers thrown in for some people to make it uh, palatable. But effectively, that's what that's what uh, that's what's been happening. So regeneration is a very uh, 
it's very political in the context of what happens. Uh, it's been and, and uh, isn't isn't it also because uh, you know at the time in behind it all when you pair it back is and this is at the heart of your book as well is an ideology and a political ideology a viewpoint a policy viewpoint expressed through politicians in the doll through policy that social housing itself as conceptualized and as delivered in large housing estates was a failure and yeah. that government the state wanted to get out of social housing and 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 the concurrence with that or the 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 conjoined kind of ideology and belief system along with that is that we don't value the working class people in these estates either. Well, I definitely think they, they, that there's no value placed on the people who live there. And I think there's extremely high value placed on the, on the places they live in. So the, obje the objective is to get them out of those places as quickly as possible. Um, but that does take time because the state itself has so many failures in relation to even providing off-site housing from there. But effectively, uh, I was ju just doing other work this morning thinking that the people who run Ireland are a management class for a larger capitalist class, right? That's what they are. That's what they do. And that's how they operate. They effectively, uh, like there's an old saying that, that the state is the handmaiden of capital. And effectively, if like, I think there are so many indicators, there's so much evidence to say that that's true, um, that we are one of the most neoliberal countries in the world. It's it's like, but the propaganda is so good and so strong that a lot of a lot of the time the spin kind of takes the gloss off that it's presented slightly differently. It's presented in. In more palatable terms and it's never obviously presented in that way um so uh, yeah i absolutely agree i think we you know accumulation by dispossession whatever phrases we use um to describe the practices that the policies have been uh wealth for a very small group of people and inequality um particularly class inequality gender inequality race inequality across the board for the many or the majority um yeah majority. yeah sorry yeah no I, and just on that back to the book the the question of yeah where what was the book about what did you want what story did you want to tell and why so in that okay I, the book is a conditions book in inverted commas it's really about saying uh people say to you all the time no it's you do you know what i mean uh you, you're just telling stories. You're just, uh, you know, making stuff up. Um, so, and part of me from the the, re what was, the reason I was talking about the first book was to actually say this book was an attempt to get to get really into the conditions people live in and live under. So, um, how they live, the difficulties they have, the choices they have or don't have, and what day to day living is like. Things like money. Uh, things like fa uh, children, family, um, love, care. So there's a whole range of chapters in the book that kind of swing on, like one of the first chapter on, of the ethnography chapters in the book is about should I stay or should I go from this place called the Bridgetown Estate? And because it's what some people call life is dilemmatic, it, there's a dilemma here. 
you know, I really like the place and I really like lots of the people here, but there are some serious issues occasionally around violence or drug dealing. So I have to see, um, uh, make a choice about what's good for me uh, in that context. And I think that a lot of the time that those vulnerabilities are preyed upon by state, by the state. So, um, so the book really digs into those conditions um, and it also the, the probably the if that's one aspect of the book. So there's I don't know seven eight chapters on the conditions in the estate of various parts. There's chapters on the estate and how it's changing. There's chapters on what we would call conventional paid work. There's also a really important emphasis on uh, women and unpaid work and the kind of devaluing of that. But how critical that is to people's survival. Um, there are chapters then on people going to charity organizations and then there's stuff around, you know, like language, the word and how important that is for people's stories and the kind of reproduction of stories or the, the kind of uh, nurturing of people through stories um, and kind of myths and so on. So that whole that's that's, if you like the spine of the book and it's kind of bookended by two other sections which uh, which really say the way public housing has been presented particularly in Ireland to my mind is not accurate and it's and there is another way and a much truer way to present it so what we've had by and large in lots of uh policy papers books materials that have been produced about public uh, public housing, the lens has been what I call the deprivation disadvantage paradigm, right? So effectively, it's this this idea that this place has a deprivation score, and we've me and you have spoken about this over the years, developed by people the late Trutz Hass and his work, and the other idea of disadvantage. So the the bigger argument in the book is really saying that what that does is make invisible the real nature and the real structuring of places like the Bridgetown Estate. Because my argument in the book is that the Bridgetown Estate is what it is, what it is through a confluence of, of factors historically, which have been present right, right up until the present, which include things like how the economy has worked or not worked for people, what austerity did to people, what happened when a lot of the kind of manufacturing and textile industries moved away and lots of other industries. Um, so the deprivation disadvantage paradigm effectively uh, anatomizes people and says, the deprivation is in you and your location, and it effectively says it has no relationship to these other, what I would call causal processes or mechanisms. And my argument is that these causal processes and mechanisms, like capitalism, like neoliberal capitalism, like austerity, which was one of its processes, uh, which could have been otherwise, for instance, other decisions could have been taken, other roads could have been taken. So the, the book says, here are the conditions in this place. Normally, people will tell you they come about because the area is, in inverted commas, deprived or disadvantaged. And I am effectively saying that's a bullshit description, right? And that it suits the powers that be. And it suits, uh, it actually participates in the reproduction of uh, the whole ideological framework of neoliberalism because it's it feeds back into that narrative which says you are responsible for your own failures, right? Again, in inverted commas. When in fact, actually, the reason places are structured the way they are, and there's so many other 
great books written about this, um, that is because of the unity of diverse determinations, as Marx would say, right? The, the concrete is a unity of diverse determinations. So the Bridgetown of the state as a concrete thing is a unity of all of these other processes and mechanisms over time that have made it what it is today. And they are various and many. And it's what the, the book really says, we can peel back some of them. And one of the key kind of uh, doorways or portals into that the story is the people's life stories themselves. So one of the stories in the book is a guy called Frank, and like he has spent his life in very mainly in construction, very radical trade union activist. Uh, but yeah, in 2010, nine or ten, probably nine, ten, was effectively let go from a construction company he'd been with for about 10 years at that stage. So his life mirrors and his story mirrors exactly what happened in capitalism in Ireland at that stage, just in one vector of it in construction. Um, so uh, I'm probably going on a little bit there, but that's um, the, the book tries to, to 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 grapple with those two things because it's and I, I it's sometimes I'm not saying I've done it very successfully, but um, the, the idea of thinking out our explanations are important, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say, and how things are explained. I was just reading something about de declarative uh, intent this morning where people name the word in particular ways and people believe that that's how the word is. Which, So in terms of the deprivation disadvantage paradigm, it's so powerful that people think that that's actually the truth about public housing estates. And the book, in a modest way, and I would like to think we can build on it, all of us, is trying to say... Um, we have to rid ourselves of the deprivation disadvantage paradigm that that might cause some funding problems. <laughs> um, but we have to change uh, the way we understand, we frame, we describe, and we cha ultimately change the nature of lives on estates like this. I, I there's so much there, um, and it's there's a couple of things that strike me, and it's something in my own work as well that I've been trying to do, that there is a power, and in GAFs I really try to work on it, the power of showing the human story as the lived experience can cut, you know, it, it can explain things and you see things in ways that kind of policy analysis or, you know, statistical discussion yeah. never shows. And often, as you say, is actually purpose, purposefully concealing realities and denying realities as well. Um, and, you know, you, you, Frank is one story. Um, maybe you could give us a couple more, because I think the stories are really important. And just briefly go through um, a couple of the stories and, and what what is in them. What are the experiences, the lived experiences? And then we can go on to, because I do want to talk a bit more about what this tells us then about public housing and, and different theories around that. But maybe let's give the human stories the time they deserve. And Yeah, um, so um, <clears throat> one of the, so when I started the book, probably just a little bit of a preamble, um, I wasn't, I, there's a few friends of mine and they were photographers. So we started kind of as an entryway into the process uh using photography as a way and that all that material is still there. We haven't done anything with it yet. But I started meeting people, various people, and talking to them. Like, I had no idea how the chapters would take shape at that stage. 
Um, and then through Kathleen Lynch and UCD, she got some, uh, and also research grant through the Irish Research Council, I was able to start doing some long recorded conversations with people, right? So yeah. I did about 30 of those at probably 2015, 16. And uh, so at that time, you're kind of beginning to say, oh, you know, you had like, a, as we're using sociology topic guides, where you're going to tell us about where you, did you grow up here? What was it like? Uh, did, did you, you know, uh, did you, you, like if you're married, your family life and so on, where did you go to school? What was education like? So there, there are all those things. So you begin slowly to see some semblance of, of themes emerging, right? And they're not rocket science in many ways. But I, I would, I've said it at the book launch, I wouldn't say I'm a great kind of interviewer let's say at that at that way and i'm probably better at sitting around with people and listening to them and hearing them so after i did the recorded conversations i just would have spent a lot of time in the estate uh just saying to people give us a cup of tea will you <laughs> John, yeah. and they say ah, did you not bring the biscuits and stuff like that to me <laughs> um, or you have jesus no chocolate ones so you can't go anywhere to... without a pack of biscuits in, yeah in... no i mean it's a great tip isn't it so I used to go in. So, for instance, I go into Frank, and Frank had painted the whole balcony. He like meticulous, pristine job on every part, even though the place was due to be demolished fairly soon. But he still wanted to live in a place that he could come up and go. This is okay, and same on the inside of his flat. So we'd sit there, we'd watch uh, Trump's politics unfold on the TV. We talk about. Uh, all that was going on in the world. He would tell me about his past. So uh, slowly, I'd every like every day I did field work. I'd go home and write up the notes. Um, I, you know, and I did that for years. Right in the end, probably five or six years. Probably three, four intense. Probably four or five times a week. Sometimes six. You'd be there. Um, you'd be having these conversations. Say right, take a few quick notes, then get home, then write them down. So. Frank's story, <clears throat> he'd say to me, don't bring a tape recorder into my house. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and I kind of was, remember leaving his flat that day going, oh, this is quite, I'm finished here because it's not going to happen. Yeah. But I didn't. I just said, okay, I'll try and write the story without the recording. And yeah. then a while ago, I gave him back the stuff, you know, and uh, like he kind of had a distort a sense that I was kind of making him something he wasn't. And I said, no, that's actually like you were active in the trade union movement. Um, and whatever it is, it's that uh, not wanting to have any attention brought on yourself. Um, you know, so, so, and then the same process with other people. So like there's another person, like there's loads of kind of men and there's two chap chapters, one called Work Ethic One, which Frank is in and Carl and a whole group of other younger men who are all coming into construction, um, smoking weed around the estate, stuff like that. So there, so there's a kind of particular male uh, energy, a history that that's in that chapter then the second chapter is is with two women nadia and michelle where they have a different life uh that men don't really think too much about which is about the fact that one of them had squatted into the estate when she was just married or her partner left her after a, less than a year uh they've had three children at, by that time and she 
remained in a one-bedroom flat for 40 years with three kids, right? Uh, because she was effectively blacklisted by the council. And, she, like, she developed chronic health issues, I think, from sleeping under a window where the water was pissing in because the flat was damp. Yeah. And um, she still has them to this day. I met her a couple of weeks ago on her one of her feet's completely twisted and she's waiting on an operation, I don't know, years. Um, so, the, so the horror story is also a story of our younger years trying to make money in a job to pay the bills, but also trying to raise three children at the same time. And Michelle's story is not dissimilar. Moving back to the estate when she's a young single parent and then having two more children and the same process for her. And like, so... There's a, I think like Kathleen Lynch would have always kind of said to like push the gender issue. Do you know what I mean? Yes, class. Yes. But what about how are women's lives different than men? Are they, uh, you know, let's not take it for granted. And I think like I, I don't know how, again, how successful it is. But what that chapter is really says that they have what's normally called the double day. Right. They have a day job and then they also have another full-time job as parents right so they're trying to manage all of those things in the same day every day and some of them work as professional carers in hospitals for instance when they leave the house get the kids to school uh, or to child minors and then they're going into really high emo high emotional content caring jobs in you know um oncology wards and so um and then they come back home they got the kids again and so on and so on so that just those distinctions so there's two two of the chapters in the book one is kind of frank carl and the rest of them and then the other is is a is a women's chapter so you're kind of digging deep into those things and even woven through that all of that stuff for kind of relationships to the estate yeah, family yeah. history and so on so um so that they all came kind of out of the early work of doing the recorded conversations. And then there was a particular point where I kind of, I was kind of floating around saying, where do I go with this thing now? And what's going to happen? And I kind of knew a group of people that went to a religious house. And I remember saying, I'll try this. And I walked up to meet them one day and said, do you mind uh, if I go along for the walk? And they said, what are you talking about? And he said, come on, so so off I went. And yeah. there's a, the other four, like four or five chapters of the book are probably three years spent with them on, you know, on like for the best part of each week, say afternoons, evenings, sometimes weekends. And that's that's a different kind of like probably life is harder. Uh, there's a probably stronger emphasis on addiction or in, in those chapters. But you get deeper into culture, you get deeper into the importance of the story, uh, myth, tropes, cliches. So there's a range of like, like the there's kind of varying levels of detail in those chapters. You know, like one of the, the title of the book, it's not where you live, it's how you live, comes from a chapter which is actually titled What Goes Around Comes Around. We all know the phrases, I, I would say, right? So people used to use them. And I would kind of say to them, like, what does that mean? Where does it come from? Why, like, why, why do you say, you know, when you say it's not where you live, it's how you live, what does it mean? And mm. in the book, uh, there's a kind of digging into those things because there's a, 
sense of I need to protect myself. I need to be able to say that I have respect or that I feel like I have respectability. Um, but I know somehow that I, it's very I'm quite vulnerable and that I can be overwhelmed as I have been on a number of occasions, whether it's around work, whether it's around having no money, whether it's around being dependent, whether it's around my relationships with state agencies. So and so there's a the, that that particular chapter, like what goes around comes around, for instance, that phrase I used to see it as a kind of um this idea of inexorable justice working itself out in the world. So somebody says what goes around comes around. And I remember sitting on the steps one day saying, like, but when the banks did what they did, did what goes around comes around. And one of the women said to me, well, they didn't really hurt anybody. Now, did they, John? Right? Yeah. Now, what I took that, obviously what that meant was, again, that what was not close to you wasn't quite wasn't definitely wasn't understood in the same way as if somebody was a physical threat to you let's say uh who was close to you there's a, a mad guy in the story called doogie who turns up and kind of is a malevolent background character and people are for instance need to protect themselves say from people like him whereas uh what goes around comes around was was much more directed at that level as opposed to, you know, that if, if you do bad things to people, think bad things will happen to you. But obviously, that's not the case in lots of ways and in lots of cases. And if you have lots of power, especially, um, you can protect yourself from great misfortunes and make other people pay for them quite often. So, um, so th th there's a kind of... The book goes deeper and deeper and deeper into from the beginning of okay, you're moving, then you're into okay, what was your working life like? What was your education life? Then it's into how are you living every day? All right, so you've got to go and you get twenty or thirty euros off Charlie on a Monday. You, you get a, you know what I mean? And there's a whole so all of the systems that people help each other. So there's a quite interesting financial system where like. There's the classic institutional loan shark systems which operate in the Bridgetown estate as they do everywhere else, but they're really fundamental, much more fundamental, informal credit system of borrowing and lending between people on mm. the estate where people uh, give each other 20, give each other 30, sometimes give each other hundreds, right? Um, most times it's paid back, not always, but... The, the, I think the thing about that is if like if I was an economist or a loans person, I would have understood the scale and importance of the informal credit economy, for instance, right? Now, the, I just go back to what you said a while ago, Rory, the thing, the part of the problem with quantitative research is definitely useful on some occasions is that the it was only by chance that I discovered that that thing, right? <laughs> I came back from a trip with children on a summer project one day and Rosie in the book is handing money in the window to our neighbours saying, um, that's what I owe you, right? Yeah. And someone else is giving her back money the next day and, and so on and so on. So, um like people don't tell you those things normally in in you know in a survey for instance right but if you're around the world you actually see hear listen and understand a kind of vast range you know like yeah and the, the things like stories the word and so on so yeah 
it's it's you know again you know, the stories are so important and those experiences and i really really would recommend people to to get the book and have a read because they are so insightful and and you know i recognize lots of them as well in having the conversations you know in my time mm. in dolphin house and and and, and you, you know right and the lived experience and then you see you know you talk about it yourself you know how the then these structures impact on people and back to that you know, you say you want to get rid of this deprivation and um, disadvantage paradigm. Mm. What what should it be replaced with? Yeah, we had this chat on uh, a few weeks ago about eco socialism, communism. Uh, take care, uh, like, but even honestly, even in terms of of not going yeah. straight to an alternative, but even in yeah. terms of okay. understanding and explaining these. You know the reality, the lived reality. So, which is at some as, level, it would mean that. So, part of the problem, just maybe to digress for a minute, is that the state has so successfully uh, adopted and used that paradigm that it's locked lots of people and lots of organisations into funding mechanisms which are totally based on that model. For instance, right. So that model was developed on. Uh, three categories was it class position unemployment and education level are they the three categories and housing you? it's it's housing it? okay so um, you're in social housing owned. yeah so yeah. but the but the problem is they're non-relational right they don't place you in a system of social relationships in a society right um so and one of the outcomes of the state successfully using the deprivation disadvantage, and there are some advantages in, in relation to getting uh, small mercies, let's say, from um, for communities in relation to community projects and community grants and so on, is that everybody is now dependent on that model. And people in projects, people in community organisations, and in a really, really bizarre way, want to be more and more disadvantaged. Right, yeah. because the more disadvantaged, uh, the more funding you get. Okay, whereas in a it, which is a strange twist of fate to be in, whereas somebody's to to commit look and going how, and I'm not, I'm not saying this is the norm. I'm saying this is the psychology thinking. Um, you know, if we're, if we're higher on the disadvantaged scale, we get more funding. So there, I don't know what the uh, replacement mechanisms are, but I think they would have to be um, a, a public acknowledgement that class, gender, um, race, for instance, is to some extent maybe more accepted um, in the identity sphere, but um, that they would be the fundamental basis of the inequalities which, which exist. And the, the, the reason that they're the fundamental basis is because they're based on relationships socially and economically between groups in the society, whereas the deprivation disadvantage paradigm will be there forever and nothing will change because people will go, there. it isn't a relational problem. It'd be, it's not, John hasn't only got 10 euros a week to live on because Rory has 500,000. Right, because Rory takes all of John's whatever, and that's why Rory is rich. That's not the problem. John has only got ten euros because John is deprived and disadvantaged. But the but the the argument I'm making is that there's a relationship of extraction and ex, what exploitation which goes on in various ways, 
and that that's at the core of the set of social relationships. But the state we live in at the moment, I think, is unable, unlikely and unwilling to accept that sort of understanding because the people who run the state actually endorse, accept, promote and instill the other paradigm, which is you are the product of your own failures or successes, right? As opposed to an analysis which says, actually, it is really critical where you started in the race because you started in the race 300 metres behind the person uh, who was ahead of you. But nobody told you, or as other Michael Apple said once at the conference, was that you got into the swimming pool with a concrete block on your back to start yeah. the race. So, um, and that's where that's where the, the, the whole architecture the systemic nature, the relational nature of the way the society is constructed. And of course, we're tied into a global system then as well. Right. But I but even if if we like even if we started at the basics in terms of what are the constituent elements of the society we live in and how do we understand them, present them, describe them. So the book is saying the constituent elements are to be found in the class and gender structures, and of course in the racial structures. Um that, that's where we need to look. We don't need to anatomize and say it just so part like you're a geographer already. I'm not a geographer. But part of the book is really about like if the city is a class text, right? Bridgetown, the Bridgetown estate, like so many estates, uh, when we look at the the, the, the Trutzhas maps and stuff like that, they only... Uh, so culturally and economically, those estates have a particular relationship to the city and beyond and have had for for decades and decades, um, and whether they were tied into industry and it collapsed or whether culturally, for instance, one of the parts of the book is about uh, in the last chapter of the ethnography, the ward, we go to a funeral in the city centre and Rosie sits beside me and Charlie's across the way and she says, uh, they're all very nice in here, John. And I'm kind of, I know what she means, right? And she says it to me three times. They're all very nice in here. And what she means is that she's not the same as them, right? And that they conspicuously have more wealth. And I didn't think they actually had that much more than her, but she knows she's out of place. And part of the class geography of the city is knowing where, like, know your place, know where you're supposed to be, know where you are not supposed to be, and do not stray. So if you've like uh and we've there's so much hype uh around surveillance and so on, if you venture out of your local class uh geographies, um it can be quite problematic, right? So people tend to stay in them and they stay in them culturally, but they but also part of the history of like in Dublin, for instance, has been that these were at uh, one place is teeming with life, communities teeming with life for long phases of their existence. And then demographically and economically, things have declined around them. And now they've become places for accumulation by dispossession, as David Harvey says. So now they have become a real source of value for uh, capital looking in and saying, actually, how can we get hold of that land? So look, I, we, we've me and you have talked the story so many times around. If you look what's happened in O'Devany, if you look at what's happened in Charlemont Street, it more than likely will happen in Treasers, in Dolphin, 
in low in all of those estates where the the state effectively by the by the default is saying yeah let's do what let's let's you know build buy to rents let's build buy to let let's build buy to lets on them let's get the market involved here okay it's a it's a small price to pay we have to discommode hundreds and hundreds of families uh, but anyway. So but it, 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 it's fascinating because on a number of levels and so important that we do understand this and think it through because, um, you know, the geography is important because what geography brings in and, you know, when you talk about Lefebvre and, you know, the, the spatial inequality, the spatial injustice, mm-hmm. which is that and part of it is why place matters. And I always remember being struck by this. Um, and, and why I connected with it when I went into work in Dolphin House back in 2007 um, in, in one of the public housing estates, the big public housing estates. What struck me straight away as soon as I went in, uh, aside from the constant slagging for Binaculchi, um and uh, not being from there um, in that sense, but was the community and was the sense of community attachment to, to place, despite the... and and. We call it deprivation, but what it is is state neglect. Mm-hmm. It's not deprivation because, and I was, but to that, I come from a small town called Tremor in Waterford, and we had a community, and I knew what community was, and I was always felt a connection to community, and that's what I identified with, and what it made, what what struck me was these communities, and I remember, you know, it came to these place matters. This place matters. And what happened was policymakers placed no value whatsoever on these places, on these communities. For them, they were deprived ghettos that just needed to be obliterated and broken up. And that would deal with the problem. And on the other side of it was this, uh, the point I was making is that, and and I think, because you said this in your launch, I think really, really well, the launch of the book, um, which was a fantastic night, um, the that it's not that we, as you talk about, you know, in these communities, in working class areas, in public housing estates, it's not that we are deprived. It's that I think you said we do not have the resources that the rest of those who have wealth and privilege have. We have been denied those. I'm not sure if that's exactly how you phrased it. And, 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 you know, I think, you know, you describe it um, now, but just in terms of that, I think a way of looking at differently, which is what you're getting across is that when you think about Dolphin House and the public housing and the, the lack of maintenance by local authorities, the lack of care, that if these places had been maintained properly, if the care had been given and value had been given to public housing, like it is in Vienna, then you wouldn't have this level of sense of disconnect and sense of deprivation. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I I think there's been a whatever. There's been no sense that there's investment was necessary. There was no sense that an investment was worth it. Why would we bother? I mean, you you've described it yourself there. Where appalling physical conditions. Uh, in, and with huge health consequences on people that some of the campaigns you were involved in. And um, yes, yeah, so there's been structural neglect for so many years and it's it's difficult to understand why 
and how people in the state can can just do that. I know uh, Michael D. Higgins has said that Michael's estate is the great uh, untold story of Ireland in a way, right? It's, it's not the only one, but it's certainly one of them. Um, and part of the part of the book really is to say that, um, like, there's I don't know what the line is where we're you're, we're writing about particular historical forms at the moment, right? And if we like, if you go back to when the states were built in the forties, fifties, sixties, like they're they're amazing. They were amazing places. I mean, um, like if like if we've told, what's his name, the Dublin uh, city architect. Herbert Sims, Sims Herbert right? Sims, so yeah. if you look at all the Sims buildings and, you know, the, the, the legacy and the history and both myself and yourself were at a, a conference before Christmas about Oliver Bond. And you could, like, I know the two of us spoke at the end of it, and you could just feel that sense of this is the beginning, <laughs> the very beginning of how, how this process starts mm. by uh, decanting a whole uh, generation and community of people who've lived there for sometimes four and five generations, their families, yeah. because we were talking to them that, that day. And uh, so, like, I, you know, the, the, the answers are many. Greed, incompetence, corrupt, corruption, um, in, ter in terms of um, why simple things can't be done to, to keep people in. And, yeah, just neglect why there's no value placed on simple tasks like keeping the public housing stock up to great spec or to really high spec. Build new, build more, build new. You've been arguing, arguing it for years. Um, you know, like that. But even, I mean, there's no doubt that um, financial interests have played a critical role in this, the destruction of public housing in the state since the 70s and 80s on, where they said, no, don't give people public housing, give them a mortgage. No, no. And now it's don't give people a mortgage, give them a rental, because mm. that way we can extract value for far longer than we even put on a mortgage, even if, uh, even for, you know. So, um, the, like, the, the, it was so there's the internal neglect of the physical fabric of the places people live in, but there's also been the structural systemic shift that the state has engaged in, which said we that's not our task anymore. Uh, you know, we yeah. don't do public housing. What we'll do is HAP, right? And what is HAP? HAP is a subsidy for private sector landlords to make zillions of euros. Um, and why would we why would we do that? Why, why would the state engage in, in you know what I mean, in a scheme which doesn't make financial uh, sense at any level, right? Um, so I think when we when we get back into that, and I saw you tweet about a new scheme in Cork or something yesterday, but um, like I think the answer is simple, to build high-quality, highly-maintained uh, public housing systems, and which includes all of the current ones, but the... Part of the issue that the book is really raising is uh, housing is super important right, for everybody. And we know the level of need uh, and we know the intensification of it in the last couple of years. But the, the people will like so, for instance, people have been given new housing in um, no, lots of situations in recent years, but they still live in really terrible material conditions. They have very little money. They won't stay in the school system long. They'll work in low-paid jobs and so on. So that's a big ask, right, I think, for, for us and for 
political activism and housing activism in general, but we've got to connect the conditions question to the provision question, right? So we can't just put people into housing and say, there you are now, you're sorted. We know that you have nothing. <laughs> we put yeah. you in a new house, but you have no money. Yeah, you have very little. To, you have very little to look forward to. You mightn't even have any transport near you, and so on and so on. So, um, the conditions. That's why the conditions part of the book is so critical, right? Be, um, and it's going to be critical as we go forward. In let's hope that we're successful. In uh, who, whoever is in power that will build the requisite numbers of public social housing over the next 10, 15 years. So um, a bit off. No, no, you're absolutely right. I think that um, in terms of that, that it is, you know, we have to provide housing and public housing um, and affordable housing. But there's also alongside that the need to address the inequalities, the pay inequalities, the the inequalities around gender, as you say, class and race. And, you know, particularly, I think in terms of disability, you know, the and, and how they intersect and the need for, you know, we look at the cost of living crisis, you look at inflation um, that, and that, and now in terms of climate as well and environment, that you have to address these inequalities um, it, and estates need to be managed properly. They need yeah. to be maintained. They need to be, and it, just in terms of, you know, how that change can happen. And in part, you know, I want to, I'll ask you first, um, I suppose theoretically and using the imaginary, the sociological imaginary and and an ideas way, how does it change? How do we message it? What what role is theory to offer us in thinking through a difference? And I'll just quote from your last um page in terms of you drawn Rancière's concept of the demos um or the demos saying there's always a vibration of hope. Wherever the part of no part is inscribed, however fragile and fleeting these inscriptions may be, a sphere of the demos is created an element of the kratos, the power of the people exists. The problem is to extend the sphere of this materialization to maximize its power. So, like, we've, we've been working for a long time to do that, and I think we continue to do so, and I, I think maybe we just need to be, <laughs> what's Gramsci's phrase? Uh, pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. Yeah. So we need to, like, that's what we need, because it's difficult, actually. And But there are, like, um, I think... Maybe that kind of phrase encapsulates it as well, right? That we need an optimism of the will, because we know that in in our own history, like even in the recent history of what you know, the Catholic Church, the relationship between church and state, it's changed, right? Enough people for enough time got a critical mass to say, uh, you know, actually it shouldn't be that way. It could be different. It could be this way. So I think a lot of people are saying that about like a lot of people have been saying about housing a lot of people like a lot of us said it about what happened like the great untold story of austerity in ireland that effectively has just been denied somebody will come along at some stage maybe it'll be maybe myself yourself or somebody or lots of other people will write the book which says actually uh, and a lot of stuff was written in recent years which which says um what happened then was absolutely criminal what mm. you did then was absolutely criminal. How you treated the Irish people, how you favoured uh, 
the capitalist economic interest uh, over ordinary people in this country was unbelievable. So, and but that but that just said, says to us that's how difficult the task we have. I mean, the propaganda is very strong. It's amazing to watch uh, you know, people who you think have uh, you know people's interests at heart all the time switch back to the default setting. What does in, what does business need? What does big business need? What are their needs? When can we meet their needs? When can we do this for them? How can we help them? Whereas when you say, when can you build public housing? Oh, look, the market will build whatever this year. We get back to our own targets whenever we can, whenever we can, whenever we can. And you go, that's really uh, the wrong way around, isn't it? Why, why, was, why aren't things the other way around? Because they're like, we've, we've looked at, you know, so many funding possibilities, financing possibilities over many years about how do you help. Like, one simple example we'll finish with uh, is if you look, Michael's estate, uh, some housing built in the early 2000s, 20 years on, nothing's really happened. Okay. Nothing has happened. If you look across the canal, where uh, international rentier housing organization called Habita has built 300 or 400 units within four years, right? No problem. All done and dusted, opened, ready to let, right? And you kind of go, that's really. Uh, amazing how that over here we can build super efficiently uh, and and then lease them back through half a lot of them to the state for enormous amounts of money um, whereas the state can, has not been able to manage to build a similar number uh, which is a bit, you know what I mean it's not rocket science it's a small enough scheme relatively so it just show it really says all the time uh, that the priorities in the state are, we contest them all the time and sometimes we win. Um, but they, they, they always, they seem to really favor big money, big power, big finance, uh, big tech. Uh, all of those interests get favored much more than uh, the everyday interests of ordinary people. And of course, it is the question of, the state and what type of state because you know on the one hand your example goes points to the efficiency of the market and why the market actually should be delivering everything and we should be just giving our money to the market to deliver because it can do it efficiently but of course it's the issue is the what it will charge for that and the inequalities generated out of it and as soon as finance decides as it's deciding now that actually interest rates are rising to, too high we don't want to invest in housing it's going to go off somewhere else and suddenly the supply is drying up um, but it's even not the supply we need. But the point being that it's difficult, I think, for us as well, and that you're arguing against a state for a different type of state yeah, and for a different type of society. And there's this constant need to push for reforms while also realizing that the entire system needs to be radically changed. Yeah. And I also, I mean, uh, I watched some Chomsky video before Christmas. I think it's that's an experiment, right? I think we have to be prepared to experiment with those things. So, like, for instance, Oculon is a really interesting experiment in housing provision, right? Very small scale. Um, and but doing trying to do very interesting things with very limited resources and doing it so far very well. Mm. We, they, we, uh, and even the, the kind of so. The way our like like we we've talked before about what would a national housing body look like? How could it work? 
right? Yeah. Uh, we know the difficulties that the uh, the council model has had in the past, and like how do you incentivize people to to want to really get in and get stuck into that sort of stuff? But look, I'm, there I'm sure there are lots of ways we can we can ex- we can do those sorts of things. Um, but what we've really got to say is we're, we're moving. So we know from, as we, the two of us know well from Vienna, that all through the crash, they, they continue to build. 20 to 25% of the housing stock every year was coming from the social public affordable block because they had sustained enough revenues from their own rental streams to be able to say, we self-fund. Uh, we need some outside external loans to, to manage the system. But um, so the, the way, but effectively, Irish housing policy, Irish society has pushed us in the completely opposite direction, and we we have to begin to try and turn that round and move it back in the opposite direction, where we have democratic housing models, democratic economic models, democratic work models, which actually favour people. Um, you know, like. Being able to live here, even at a basic level, uh, yeah. in that in that sense. So, and, and I and I think that you know I do feel hopeful in that you know at the one hand things are so bad now, you know so much worse than you know fifteen years ago even. Um, but on the other hand, the ideology and what Gramsci called the common sense, I think, yeah. has dramatically changed. In even in recent years in the last three or four years, you know, the conversations that you have with people about accepting, you know, there's very few people now, aside from the landlords and people who have, you know, vested interests in the property industry, um, very few, and even business you'll hear now will say, oh, the state has to play a key role in delivering housing. Like that is a shift in the common sense. And we should, you know, I think we need to see that and understand it. And then you know, draw on it and say, okay, that's the shift in this. The thinking is changing. And, you know, I think there's growing sense that we need to have a right to housing in the constitution. We might have a referendum. Hopefully we will. That will lead to huge debates, huge discussions. There will be huge work to get it passed. But the question is, where do we go now? And how do we push this momentum and change into those real different models of delivering housing. Housing associations have a role, local authorities have a role, or coolons have a role, ideally community self-build have a role, yeah. um, affordable housing has a role, um, creating new types of housing systems. Um, this all has a role. And I think that I feel optimistic, but at the same time, there's a huge human tragedy ongoing as well. And you know, we think in terms of the evictions. You know, and I put up the petition and asking listeners to sign it, the uplift petition, if you can, to for the government to extend the eviction ban. But just talking yeah. and listening to people about, you know, and all the narrative is, oh, the landlords are leaving. And what are we going to do if the landlords leave? Um, and rather than going, do you know what? The system has to change landlords. We don't need for profit landlords. We need affordable and public housing. And that's a major shift. And I think we're at a crux point. Like the eviction ban is what the government do on the eviction ban is going to be a big signal for yeah. where we're going. Look, I, I agree. Maybe just 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 on your broader question, I think there's two. So we have institutional politics, and that's going to be one of the prisms through which things will happen. And we're going to find out, for instance, if Sinn Fein are in power in two years' time, 
um, like if the powers that be run the state or whether housing policy decisions can be radically altered, let's say. But the other thing that I think where myself and yourself have worked for a long time and been active is let's call it civil society, right? Or yeah. And like if you go back to you mentioned Zizek at the beginning, and Zizek made the argument that in Venezuela, that when Chavez took power, what really needed to happen was civil society needed to be very strong in opposition to Chavez, right? To argue with them and to really uh engage in a very strong sense in a robust uh debate about all of the policy changes for instance right but that didn't happen Zizek said Chavez had um almost a carte launch for for a period of time whereas he argued that the opposition would have made Chavez think much more critically about decisions he was taking whether to nationalize companies and so on right so if if <clears throat> I think the biggest mistake we can make in Ireland is hand over to institutional politics and hope that they will deliver, right? Yeah. Uh, after the next election, what we need to really think is that the civil society, the activist groups, the activist organizations, all of the, the housing networks, all of the more, you know, the masses, the cartoons, the hands, and all beyond that, all of those organizations need to really say we're here to be that public sector opposition, right? That's what we need to because we need to really keep the pressure on to make sure that those things that we're talking about, as as, as opposed to then we list them back to you know that thing where uh people go, Well, actually, we thought that uh we could easily finance so many bills a year and now we've been told by the markets that sorry we will only fund rentals yeah <clears throat> so i think that that's where that's where the pessimism of the intellect comes from for us we've got to be very intellectually pessimistic and say no we will watch very very carefully what's going to happen now because the only thing that matters here is what happens for people right and that they get what they need and that the conditions change for them I think it, it's it's vital in terms of that in civil society and that that social movement action. And I think the Ireland for all uh, mobilization was very, actually very important for that. Um, and I just had a chat to Dean and uh, Claire uh, and Dara about that there in a recent podcast. And I was struck by the sort of ongoing process of value shift, even from you know, the, the decline of the Catholic Church, which you referred to, the assertion of, you know, marriage equality, of repeal, and um, those kind of social changes, but within them are values as well, because we have shifted as a society to, as a result of the crash and everything, the opinion polls show we are broadly centre-left in terms of viewpoints on not just liberally, but social and economic issues. Um, and, but we're seeing obviously the rise of the far right, organizing in communities that we have talked about, the most deprived, um, the ones most abandoned by these policies we've talked about. And the question, I think, for civil society as we go forward now is absolutely that we need um, um, a vibrant, active, oppositional, 
constructive, <laughs> destructive civil society that can challenge and that that um again it referenced another podcast I had with Mary Murphy recently from Minucci talks about a high energy democracy, you know, one that and, and I think that the question is how we do that as we go forward because the local for all groups I think are actually quite important in that. And maybe, you know, what what do you think in terms of that? How do, how it could be done? Yeah. And maybe it's it. also sorry, the raise the roof, you know, the ha- action on housing yeah. um that can keep people engaged and engage more people. Look, we we've been involved in like so many various campaigns over many years. So um you get a bit weary sometimes, but I, but I think, um, like especially the, the the recent stuff is life or death for people. Um, the state has been actively racist into how it's laid out its immigration policy in the last couple of years. Uh, like, why would it not have just given uh, PRSI numbers to everybody who was here, for instance? So, um, I I still can't understand that. But on the was it the seventh the demonstration? The eighteenth. The eighteenth. Um, like I, we, we, there was a good few of us at that together. My daughter came with me, and it was fantastic, amazing, yeah. like brilliant, yeah. just a great turnout. So, like, I mean, and you know that thing, like I had no part role to play, and like Claire did amazing work, and um, the, all that the group of people who set it up. But the the thing about that, that really, the thing that struck me that day was people travelled from the country, right? People mm. travel from Cork, they travel from Limerick, they travel from Kilkenny, yeah. they Donegal, travel from the yeah. West. Yeah. So, <clears throat> and like you know, like you know yourself, to really get people, it has to be. Um, and so I think that's a critical. Like it's a you you know some issues are open, whatever they open up big things, and that's that's so important at the moment. In terms of you know, just like we, I, we've never had that experience here where people have been prepared to go and you know surround hostels and police stations and and argue against people being here like just because they can because it's within their proximity um, to do that. So, um, but we've got, I think we've there, we've got some great organisers and we've got got some great organising skills. Um, and we've got we've so we've and we've got to use them. We've got to build on them. Um, in you know, like they're like they're a great and like one of the challenges I'm having at the moment is next generation work with new people, and how we're going to do build that next generation. And of course, it feeds into this conversation. You know, who are the next generation? There are people like our our children. Uh, young people from the Bridgetown estate, young, you know, young travelers, young uh, black and Asian minority ethnic people. So it's it's across the board. And I think that was really amazing. I think, you know, some of the people that spoke on the day of the demonstration, uh, it's just brilliant. You know, there's a, also was a young guy I listened to here at Dundalkin at a rally a few weeks ago. Just uh, um, so like, yeah, I'm ho- I'm hopeful, but we can't be. What's the word? Um, no, you know, it it won't happen by itself. No, it certainly won't. No, <laughs> it requires a lot, a lot of work, uh, yeah. as you have done incredibly. Um, and you know, I think, I think it is, it is interesting. And of course, we haven't even touched on the climate dimension and what that means and the opportunities, uh, 
the challenges of it in terms of the actual real emergency that we're facing and, and how it's feeding anxieties and anxieties in our children and anxieties and despair and turning away from politics to a certain extent, while others, you know, it, it is engaging them, but also at the same time uh, requires such radical change that it opens up whole other, uh, I think, vistas and possibilities of real radical change and allies coming on board and in in achieving equality and and the change to the economic model uh, and the social model and will require it um and i think that is possibly um you know it's not possibly but it, it's something that we have to be integrating and thinking about and considering in in our actions and you know in our work um as well but listen john uh thanks so much for joining me we could no go worries. on and on yeah yeah no i i mean i just on the climate thing i think the state is uh proceeding as normal or as in giving away <laughs> all of our natural energy resources to private companies right? yeah it's yeah. it's the same model that they like we have an, apart from a few radicals the, like we have an eco capitalist green party right which is a real oxymoron in in yeah. green in in green sense you know they they don't go together, but they they act as if they do. Yeah, no, absolutely, um, and and, and it, there's a need to structurally challenge it. But listen, if people want to read your book, as I said, it is yeah, yeah. it's not where you live; it's how yeah. you live. Fantastic class and gender yeah. struggles in a Dublin estate, uh, published by Policy Press. And it's in it's it like you can order it in any bookshop. They they may not have it just in stock at the moment because it's on whatever print runs. It's it's on a second print run now toward maybe so yeah but any bookshop will get it for you uh, and Hodges Figgis have I think have copies in it's number one in Hodges Figgis at the moment brilliant fair play oh, yeah. that is fantastic well yeah. done yeah fantastic and listen um, we'll have to uh, I'll have to get back out uh, and yeah, into too. the community again and uh, chat and check in with how everyone is doing yeah. it's, it's great to Great to see you, and and the launch itself was brilliant. The the life yeah, and the yeah yeah the community's been in there. Um, that's right. So listen, if you were to, what do you want to call the podcast? What title do you, you want to put on it? Uh, it, it? I don't mind. It's not where you live; it's how you live. We go with that. Public housing. Yeah, yeah. You you call it your game. Defense of public housing, drawing yeah. on Marcuse's yeah. book. Yeah. Or yeah. Great. Um, go on. Are you something else? No, 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 that's grand. I'm easy. I'm with you. Like the class and gender struggles in the Dublin estate, the subtitle is a really good, cool, it's a, like it just works as well. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, Absolutely. Great. We'll go with that. We'll go with that. Listen, John, thanks so much. And, and Rory, mind yourself. Yeah. And to all our listeners as well, um, you know, thank you so much for your support. And if you can um, become a patron, do support us. We're an independent podcast, completely reliant on our listeners to um fund the cost of production producing the podcasts and also share them around if you can these are really really important um conversations in changing ireland and listening and in terms of hearing ideas like john's and you can listen back we had some really good ones recently um ireland for all which and also mary murphy's on climate change and also um, if you can sign the petition on Uplift um, to extend the eviction ban, please, it's so important. Thank you so much, everyone, and we will talk to you all very soon.